Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Again, welcome here. We're going to gather back together. If we have not met, I'm Bobby, and I serve the Commons community as one of the pastors on the team. It has been a while since I have been in Inglewood. It was warmer when I was here last, but it's really, really, really so good to be back. This past week, of course, was Halloween and All Saints. I'm a big, big fan of both. How many of you got your Halloween on? Actually, I... Follow some of you on Instagram so I know that you definitely got your Halloween on. But now what I'm really wondering, what I really want to know is, did you celebrate All Saints Day? Maybe not, right? There's just like way less candy involved. Now, when I was in Vancouver, I lived in community with my friends, a family of five, And on All Saints Day, we'd gather for dinner and every person, the kids and the adults, would light one candle each to remember someone who had died. And we'd gather around this table and we'd name that person together. And then we'd say just a really simple prayer. So I wanted to start with this this morning. I'm going to read this really simple prayer as we're settling in. And as I read it, I invite you to light an imaginary candle to remember someone that you have loved and lost, maybe someone who was a bit like a saint to you. So the little prayer slash poem, it goes like this. Light a candle in the darkness. Light a candle in the night. Let the love of Jesus light us, light a candle in the night. The Christian calendar holds space for our sorrows. So just imagine what All Saints dinner tradition like this could do for the spiritual formation of your kids. So I just want to give that to you and say next year get into it, get into it. So we are over halfway through our series in Joseph, and today we join up with Joseph when he is in jail. And how did he get there? Well, his boss Potiphar had a wife, unnamed in the story, who accuses Joseph of sexual misconduct, and we are told that God is with Joseph, and he is innocent, but the prison door still slams behind him. Now, here's the thing for me. I am always on the lookout for narratives that use the story of a woman to advance the story of a man. Once you start seeing this narrative maneuver, you can't unsee it. In fact, my husband Jonathan loves Game of Thrones, and I do mean like true love forever, loves Game of Thrones. He's read the books more than once. He's listened to the audiobooks more than once. It's the same thing. And He has watched the TV series, of course, you guessed it, more than once. But my relationship with Game of Thrones is more 
complicated. I broke up with that series for a year after watching yet another violent act against a woman used to further the story of a man. Now, I did go back to the show because I love my husband, especially when I heard that the ascent of the women's characters really takes place in season seven. But the issue of women just kind of flattened out and used to advance the plot of men's stories is honestly pretty maxed out for me. So while I love the way that Scott handled the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife last week, with this invitation to see Joseph as this stand-in for Amy and every person victimized by power, I also want to say that that includes Potiphar's wife, too. She is victimizer and victim. She belongs to her husband. Her power is actually not her own. And yes, she contributes to the injustice of the story. I'm not saying that what Potiphar's wife did was right. I'm only saying that it is so messy out there. What breaks my heart is that Joseph's story, it gets to keep going. But Potiphar's wife's story, it stops right here. Often, those who act in injustice have also been subject to injustice. So I want more for her story too. Before we dive into Joseph's time in prison, I also wanna honor the story of women who have not had their full stories told. Because the playing field is just not equal. And I long for a better world for us all. So let's pray together. All loving God, to whom all hearts are open and all desires known, we pause to reflect on some of the deep matters in our own hearts. Many of us hold losses, we hold grief, we hold anxiety. Many of us are grateful, we feel comforted, we feel full. Many of us are a mix of so many things. So as we move through Joseph's story today, may we be aware of the places where we are stuck. May we be present to your very patient work to set us free. Spirit of the living God, present with us now, you tend our hearts and our families and our communities. Jesus, help us to be alert to you, we pray. Amen. So, the story begins. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. So, two high up officials offend the king. Their offenses could possibly make for a fabulous true crime podcast today, 
but the details are not of any concern to us here. What matters is that this collision of world is happening with the opening scene. We've got the anger of Pharaoh. He's pushing down on the court. And then we have the captain of the guard kind of holding up the prison and enter Joseph, whose success in Egypt is actually on the rise, even though he has this little layover in jail for a while. Now, right at the beginning, it's helpful to remember what Joseph's story is here to do. Joseph's story in Genesis is the prequel to the story in Exodus. It is meant to answer this question, how did we get here? As in, how did the Israelites become enslaved in Egypt, oppressed and forgotten? And theologian Joan Cook says, the story of Joseph relates God's ongoing care to the people as they move to Egypt, setting the stage for the exodus to come. And what this quote does not spell out is the 400 years of slavery between Joseph's rise and his people's exit out of Egypt. It can be easy to think that the Bible is here to tell us the story of the warrior and the winner and the king. But the Bible always circles back to the story of the hated brother and the story of the prisoner and the story of the slaves. And with this being the case, we have to ask ourselves, well, whose stories deserve to be prized? Many stories in our world venerate the wealthy, the entertaining, the ones who win, but do these stories make us better? Do they give us bigger beating hearts? Do they guide us to finding ways to name our own struggles? Now, some of you know that I am a huge listener to podcasts. Podcasts are like, they're like my little friends. I am committed to podcasts because I'm committed to stories, especially stories from the margins. A podcast that opens me and challenges me is Radiotopia's Ear Hustle. An Ear Hustle is a podcast from San Quentin State Prison in California, hosted by Erlon Woods, who has been incarcerated for 21 years, and Nigel Poor, a visual artist and podcaster, who has been working with the men in San Quentin for seven years. And in a recent podcast episode called Future on Ice, there's a story of a man named Pun Yu. And he's from Cambodia, but he came to America when his family fled the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields. And years into immigrating, and three unsettling moves later, he fell into gang life. In all his time in the States, Poon had never actually become an American citizen. And as he prepares to leave prison, his life is in limbo. He could end up deported back to a country he hardly remembers. There's this moment when Poon talks about his future, and when he's asked what will be in Cambodia if he is forced to return, he says, a whole lot of nothing. As I listen to this man's dream, what he imagines for his own future, I'm affected. I start to see the complexity of immigration and race and the prison industrial complex. My heart opens. And the scriptures show us how to look out for the stories of people who struggle. 
Through Joseph, we survey the power of this Egyptian empire. They were massive and muscular and oppressive. And we trace this tiny little story playing out inside this empire, which, if nothing else, will tell a people brutally stuck later under that empire's foot, this is how you got here. So maybe you feel stuck. Stuck in a role or a job or a mistake. Maybe something outside of you makes you feel so stuck. Maybe it's something inside. Naming how you got stuck, it turns out, is sacred work. So, can I ask you to trace the systems, the actions, the hurt that got you exactly where you are? Be brave to name what makes you mad or so sad or deeply confused. And then, look for that tiny little ray of divine hope, tiny as one man stuck in a prison with some dreamers. So, we check back in with Joseph in prison, and we are told that the two men, the cupbearer and the baker, each have a different dream on the same night. And Joseph is in charge of their care, and when he comes to them the next morning, he sees that they are dejected, literally. They are just out of humor, and Joseph asks, why do you look so sad today? I kind of love this. He's just like checking in with their emotional health. Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. There's actually a lot revealed in Joseph's reply. Even in prison, after 11 years in Egypt, Joseph remembers who he is. Scratch that, actually. Joseph remembers the best parts of who he is. Here and in verse 15, Joseph points out to, that his, he has this faith in God and his identity is still intact as an innocent Hebrew. He doesn't say that he was once this annoying snot of a little brother. He doesn't say that he may have also sort of sold his own soul to part of Egypt's ranks. He doesn't say that he's the sum total of his boss's wife's accusations. In fact, the more stuck that Joseph becomes, the more he refines the essence of who he really is. Maybe today you need to realize this too. You can feel all kinds of stuckness in your life, but that doesn't mean that you have to feel really far away from who you are. You can be held back. You can be held down. You can be held off to the side. You can feel all kinds of forgotten, but it just may be that in that exact place, you finally know the best parts of who you actually are. But before Joseph's dreams for freedom have any hope, he steps up to interpret the dreams of the others. The first dream Joseph hears, it goes like this. The chief cupbearer says, In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on that vine there were branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. 
Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. So in this dream sequence, there's this branching out of these visuals. You can imagine the vine sprouting a bud, growing a grape, all moving forward in time. Unlike his own agriculturally themed dream from a decade past, the future that this dream suggests is going to happen really fast. Joseph says it to the cupbearer, Pharaoh will lift your head and restore your position after three days. So here, this lift your head, it is a biblical idiom, meaning to grant favor or extend reconciliation. It's about regaining dignity and honor and independence. So yay for that cupbearer. But then there's the second dream. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This second dream also parallels Joseph's own second dream from a decade past. Both are oriented to the sky, but where Joseph's dream had these celestial bodies bowing down, the baker's dream has ravenous birds swooping down. And it's no small detail that the birds eat the bread meant for Pharaoh. The baker has failed to drive those birds away. So Joseph's interpretation states that a bad news train is a coming for the baker. Joseph says that the three baskets also mean that in three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head. The NIV shows us the similarities of these phrases with one key word difference. And the difference in Hebrew suggests hanging, but hanging was not a practice of execution in the ancient Near East at that time. So Hebrew scholar Robert Alter suggests the mode of death here is punishment with the baker's body impaled on a stake. And Nahum Sarna thinks less about the similarities in the phrases and makes the point that the baker's head will be raised to bring justice to him. Joseph has unlocked the meaning of the dreams, and while it won't happen overnight, he has put his own hope in the hands of the cupbearer. Pretty smart move, I think. And once again, dreams will determine Joseph's path. So years ago, when I was dating this guy in Vancouver, I had a vivid dream. It was really on, really early on in that relationship. In fact, maybe we shouldn't call it we probably shouldn't call it a relationship. It was like way too early for that. All the same, I was super into it. And what I remember about this dream is that I was in a bed with this man. Now don't worry, this dream is totally PG rated. But in the dream, I was sleeping with my head at one end of the bed and my feet at the other, but this guy, who I really cared about, was flipped the other direction in the bed. So his feet were where my head was and my feet were where his head was. Weird, right? And I don't always remember my dreams, but I could not shake that one. I walked around thinking about it for a while and eventually it hit me. We were never going to fit. 
The interpretation of my dream had this effect on me. It lifted my head. It prepared me for the future. It helped me see reality. I couldn't stay in this daydream of this relationship working out. Whether through a dream or a prayer or a long pause, the invitation to face the truth of your life is always waiting for you. Kathleen Norris says that prayers often bring to the surface what we would rather not remember. Maybe that's why we just struggle to pray or struggle to just stop and breathe or struggle to let our own thoughts catch up to where we actually are because if they do, they will tell us the truth of our lives, that we're often lonely or bored or sad, that we are so scared or tired or unsure. This is what Joseph does with these dream interpretations. He draws out the truth of these two men's lives. Both of their heads are lifted, though. One will face a freer future, and the other will face his end. Joseph's story says that the key to interpreting dreams or anxieties about the future or hopes for freedom is to go to the one who holds all of these matters. Go to God. And this is not a God who is scared off by your particular situation. This is God who is with you in any prison or pit. The God who will lift your head. God will lift your head to bring justice and fairness into your life. God will lift your head so that you can boldly stand in your own story exactly as you are, trusting that you are safe and held. God will lift your head so that your own voice is heard speaking the truth of what it is like being you. But you may also need God to lift your head to be honest about your own life to live with the consequences of your actions, to see, as the poet Christian Wyman says, that you are, by the grace of pain, still here. With our heads lifted, we finally hear truth speaking. It might be beautiful, it might be brutal, but at least it's real, and you're in it. What we see in Jesus is that the wrath reserved for the baker in this story, is now aimed at the worst thing that has been done to you. God's love holds you, and the cross of Christ transforms you. And I didn't end up with that man in my dreams, but another dream was being worked out that whole time. It just took some hard, lonely years for me to see it. Back in Egypt, dream interpretation was a very real business. So Joseph tries to cut this deal with the cupbearer. He says, but when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. 
So the NIV translates the Hebrew word by it as prison and the Hebrew word bore as dungeon. And those translations are fine. They're emotionally very strong, but we lose some of the literary art here. Across the chapters, the writer uses the repetition of these words to carry multiple meanings. So the purer translation of by it is house, and bore is the word for pit like the pit Joseph was thrown in by his brothers in chapter 37. Joseph is basically on house arrest, so he's not literally in a dungeon. What the writer is doing is showing us that Joseph feels just like he's back there in that pit. And Jeremy and I were talking about the pit this week, and he drew out this observation that this right here is Joseph's low point. In the past, Joseph has made the best of some really gross and tricky situations, but here, he is so stuck. He's stuck in a very bad place. And I'm sure Joseph prayed all kinds of pleading prayers to be free, but he doesn't wait for the kindness of God to show up. He puts a little trust in the kindness of this prison neighbor. He says, remember me. I'm innocent after all, remember me. And it turns out that yes, our freedom is in fact intertwined. And I don't know if there was ever been a time when we need to remember that more. With climate change, power imbalances, sexism, racism, greed, war, lies, corruption. It's not that God isn't working the levers of justice. It's just that God has made us the levers, and we have to work at it together. But still, sometimes we don't see liberation for a long, long time. The story of two dreams and two interpretations, it ends like this. On the third day, it was Pharaoh's birthday, and he threw a party for the officials. At such an event, it was the custom for Pharaoh to grant amnesty, so he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The ancient writer uses the same words in these verses that Joseph used earlier. The writer is highlighting that Joseph got the interpretations right. What Joseph spoke, it had the authority of God. Sometimes it's like that, right? We are listening for God to speak, and we find God's voice sometimes sounds a lot like our own voice. Here, God didn't write a message on the wall or speak from a cloud or erect a fire column in the corner of a prison cell. God speaks with Joseph's own voice. And it's not all helium balloons or confetti or sunshine either. It's freedom for one man and it's death for another. A good story right there beside a bad one. A couple of weeks ago, I got into the TV show The Good Place thanks to an article about the TV show The Good Place. Am I the only person who likes TV a little bit better if I can read about it first? I am. <laughs> anyway, in a piece, 
titled The Ultimate Sitcom, Sam Anderson writes about the burden of a nation's badness. And he's talking about America in this piece, but what he says also applies to us here in Canada. And Anderson says that The Good Place, this TV show, is taking a moral accounting of the American soul. America, he says, as a nation who took an entire continent from its indigenous peoples, enslaved, tortured, lied, and stole to keep it, and carried on generation after generation in the same way. So questions are asked. Can a person or a nation ever change? Can this badness be redeemed? And the creator of The Good Place, Michael Shore, responds in this way. He says, in the face of so much badness, it is always tempting to give up, but the heroic thing to do is to try. And we see this episode after episode. The characters, Eleanor, Chidi, Tahani, Jason, first they're, in a, they're bad and they're in a good place, then they're good but they're in a bad place, all the time realizing that their freedom is wrapped up in the freedom of one another. The show's creator is making a suggestion to a very troubled America. When people are in a difficult situation, the question to ask is, what is the next thing that we can do? And then ask it again, okay, what is the next thing we can do? And this matters because our dear Joseph is not in the good place yet. Today's story does not have a happy ending. The last line goes like this. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. The line, it drops with this heavy blow. Joseph sent his best laid plan out into the world, tying his hope for freedom to the power of the cupbearer made free, and it does not work. Not yet, anyway. Not for a couple of years. So, I want to put the brakes on today with this Hebrew pun. There are two verbs in these short verses, and they sound a lot alike. Zakar means to remember, and shakah means to forget. Zakar, shakah. And the words rhyme to resound. And resound they will. Zakar will show up Again, 20 years later, when Joseph is face-to-face -face with his brother, brothers, asking them to remember him. And we're not talking about just like fleeting memory, like, hey guys, remember me, the guy that you like left in a pit? We're talking about moral memory. It's a remember back about how you did that thing and it wasn't right, but there's a better way to be in the world. And this story in Genesis 40 is set out in the Torah to foreshadow the story that is to come. We've talked about that. A time when all of ancient Israel will be forgotten, slaves by the thousands in Egypt, and they will cry out, we're forgotten. So, if you feel forgotten now, or you're walking with someone who really feels forgotten, remember Joseph, the patron saint of being forgotten. It is sacred to be where you are, as if God isn't right there beside you in the good times and the very bad. And when you find yourself stuck in a bad place, name how you got exactly where you are, 
Don't be afraid to trace your own sad, complicated story. It just might be that your freedom depends on it. And remember the best parts of who you are. You belong to God. And all of your suffering will be transformed with meaning in God's loving care. And send a little hope out ahead of you. Attach it to a friend. Cry out with a partner. Work now to make a future that you can live in later, even if you cannot yet see that happy ending. The good is coming, but for now. May you know that the struggle to get out of your stuck situation is deeply sacred too. Let us pray. Loving God, you witness all pain and you are present to all delight. You are God and your complexity can infinitely hold all things. Today we pause to pay a little attention to a situation within or without that has been getting us down, making us feel like we are in a pit with Joseph. And we wonder, God, how are you making your good approach? How can we wait for justice? How can we participate in a world made more fair? Jesus, you show us that a small story can actually remake the world. In spirit, you are present in our pain and our joy. And for all of this, we give you thanks. Amen.